You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode is sponsored in part by Hashtag Lube Life. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their USDA-certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. To buy through Amazon, go to lubelife.com. They're already super affordable, but now you can get 20% off by using our Sluts and Scholars promo code 20SCHOLARS, 20SCHOLARS. If you lube it, they will come. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, and I'm a very busy law student who makes time to talk about fucking. Uh, this week, we are joined by Holly Randall. She is prolific and hardworking and has over 20 years of experiences, 20 years of experience, which has cemented her as one of the adult industry's most respected and sought after directors. She's the daughter of the world renowned erotic photographer, Suze Randall. She had a pretty unique childhood. She was raised in a sexually open family that combined liberal values with a classic British upbringing of equestrian sports, private education, and etiquette classes. Oh my God, I'm dying to know about what happened at charm school and if they smacked you with a ruler. Holly began her education at the Brooks Institute of Photography, but she ended up graduating from UCLA in 2003 with a degree in world literature. While in school, she began working for her parents in the adult industry at the age of 20. She has her own website, hollyrandall.com, but she's also shot for big mainstream adult companies, Twisties, Digital Playground, ManyVids, Penthouse, Playboy Plus. She's actually the only producer to actively work for a multitude of different companies that range from hardcore adult scenes to softcore work for Playboy, for example. She also has four coffee table books of art photography. She teaches photography workshops, and she recently has her own successful podcast called Holly Randall Unfiltered, which is also a member of our podcast collective, The Pleasure Podcasts. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm always impressed with the introductions, and I know I say this all the time, but it's always so cool to hear just all of the things. So yes, we're so happy to have you. Yeah, I know. It's great. It's kind of like, you know, when you're in the day to day, you don't really think about all the things that you've like achieved. You always think about the things you haven't achieved, and you're thinking about your next goal and your next project and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes when I sit back and I hear all that, I'm like, oh, I have, I've done a lot of things with my life. Amazing. Yes. (laughs) I feel that so hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're glad we can remind you of how fucking awesome you are. Thanks. Thanks so much. I know you have been asked this before, but people always ask us how we got to a place where we could have a sex podcast and feel comfortable with our own sexualities. And so I'm so curious what it was being, what it was like being raised um, in a sex positive household and how you feel like maybe it impacted your sexuality? Um, well, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to compare myself to what other people's upbringing was because, you know, I only know my own and it seemed very normal to me. Um, my parents are very normal in, in a lot of ways. Um, they were very strict about education. Um, they read me a bedtime story every night. We had Sunday lunch every Sunday. We spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, they did the usual, like, parent-type things. Um, but, you know, they had an unusual job, which when I was younger, I understood that, you know, what mom and dad did was for grown-ups only, and it wasn't um, stuff for children. And that was kind of, like, as far as my understanding was. And, you know, I didn't really care to know that much more because when you're a kid, you don't care what your parents do for a living, right? Um, and then as I got older, I kind of, you know, I don't remember, people always ask me, they're like, when did you find out? And I don't remember this exact moment, this epiphany where I found out what my parents did for a living. It was just something that I kind of always knew um, and didn't really interest me, you know, until like I hit puberty. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. It was just like, 
you know, my mom always told me that, um, you know, women were beautiful and women's bodies were beautiful and there was nothing to be ashamed of. And um, there just wasn't any like sexual shaming in my family and they were just super open and, and liberal and, and that just felt normal and, and cool to me. So I don't know. It's hard to say like, what was it like? Cause it was like, it was fine. It was normal. It was, it was like you know, your life, my life. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I think it's so interesting that, I don't know if you just like to specify or if you, part of you feels like you have to specify, but part of what we talk about here on Sluts and Scholars is just the stigma around being a like sexually confident out, you know, outside the box sexual person. And so right. I think it's interesting that you have to specify that you had normal parents who were good parents because yeah. they did the work that they did. Like people yeah, may, exactly. maybe have this stigma or assume that like, oh, because they take pictures of naked people that they can't be good parents. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's actually a really fascinating clip that we found um, of my mom when she did an interview for a current affair in Australia a year before I was born. Um, and she had just uh, published her book, Suze, which was this, um, you know, titillating autobiography about, you know, her life at the Playboy Mansion and the orgies her and my dad went to and all that kind of stuff. Very scandalous, you know. And she was being interviewed by this this journalist, and he was very um, uptight. And he said to her, he said, you know, uh, what kind of mother are you going to be? You know, what kind of morals are you going to teach your children? In this very accusatory tone. And she Ew. was a little bit caught off guard. And she said, well, I'm going to, I think I'm going to be a very good mother. I'm going to teach my children, you know, what all parents should teach their children, you know, to, to be a good person and to be kind to others and to be generous and to be honest and She's like, what else do you teach your children? And and then he went on to say, like, well, one day, you know, when you're when you're a granny and you've got your grandchildren and they find out about this book, what are your grandchildren going to think about you and um, what you've done? <laughs> oh and God. what she and it's so amazing because what she said, I feel like, was so prophetic. She goes, listen, when I'm a grandmother, um, my grandchildren aren't going to give a damn what I did back when I was, you know, in my late twenties because. By then, society would have progressed to a point where we're not going to be so uptight about sex and people aren't going to have such a stick up their ass like they do now. So she's like, I don't think my grandchildren are going to care at all what I did when I was younger. And I feel I mean, like... they might have a stick up their ass, but only because they like it. Right, right. But it's kind of amazing like how that's sort of come true. I mean, obviously, we have a long way to go and there's still a lot of stigma and there's still a lot of fear around sex, but it's better than it was um, I think, you know, 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and she's right, you know, and then, and then she had me, her first child a year later, and she's a great mother. My parents are awesome. My whole family, I have a brother and a sister. Um, my brother's a lawyer, my sister's a nurse. And we're all really close and we all get along great. And successful, and like, it sounds like. Yeah. And we have no, I have no like childhood trauma. I had a great childhood. My parents were, you know what I mean? Like, I just it's so weird that we have to defend this, though. Yeah, because people automatically assume, like this journalist who interviewed my mom, that because they work in the sex industry, you know, they're degenerates and they don't know how to raise children properly, and they're going to subject, you know, they're going to have orgy parties in the house, you know, when I'm a kid or something like that, and, and it, nothing could be further from the truth. I want to hear about etiquette classes very quickly because we've had <laughs> a lot of guests on the podcast, but no one who's gone to charm school. Um, <laughs> Just like, what'd you learn? <laughs> so my parents are British and um, they're very strict about, with me at least, you know, being the oldest, they they were very strict about kind of grooming me to be, a, a you know, a well-mannered, well-rounded young lady. So I went to cotillion, which is like ballroom dancing and etiquette classes. And the most ironic oh thing is, is that God. the only other person I know in the world who's been to cotillion is my boyfriend, which is super random. Um, we both have the same teacher. But now you know someone else. Nicoletta is of this ilk as well. Oh, yes. really? You went to uh, did, you grow, did you grow up in LA? Yeah, I went to Beverly Hills Cotillion. Um, so I went to Beverly Hills Cotillion. Oh my yes. god! <laughs> this is the it oh, was in wait, like a so wait, house, was your teacher like, Gay of Beverly Gaze, Hills off Gaze of Smith? like Benedict Canyon? I think. I don't know. It was some very grandiose like mansion. Yes, yes, I went there and. I also did the etiquette classes too. I don't know if yours were like this, but you go to a place and you dress up in a nice outfit and they yes. like give you snacks and they teach you how to like interact with the snacks properly. Yes. 
Yes, and actually, I have a great story. This is the most rich people shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, no. So, this so, is the richest people conversation <laughs> I think I've ever been personally privy to as like a peasant Jew from Eastern Europe, but I'm honored for the opportunity to listen. <laughs> no, so I have a great, actually, I have a great story about Cotillion, which kind of shows like this intersection of like these two lives that my parents lived, right? So my parents, like I said, you know, sent me to um, Cotillion to try to teach me to be a, a grown, you know, well-rounded young lady. Now, we weren't honestly that rich. Like, obviously, they did well enough to be able to send me there. <laughs> but I was definitely, like, the poorest kid at Cotillion. And every week, <laughs> these kids would buy these, like, really grandiose, you know, dresses, ballroom dresses. And they would have a different one every week. And we couldn't afford to buy me a new dress every week. So I would often wear the same dress, and the kids would make fun of me. So oh, one of I my mean, mom's- Yeah, that's super embarrassing. So what, no, it gets worse. One of my mom's side gigs was she shot for this catalog called Swimsuit um, International. And it was really bad, like 80s style, um, you know, lingerie and bikinis and just the really slutty outfits. Yeah. And so I don't know how she talked me into this. Um, but one week, you know, I was crying over the fact that I'd, I was always wearing the same dress and the kids were making fun of me. And so she brought me home this hot pink spandex jumpsuit with like a little skirt. And she was like, wear this. This is fun and different. And I did. Oh, mom. And I went to, and they threw me out. And they told (gasps) me that Halloween was next week and that I was dressed completely inappropriately. And I had to sit outside of um, the ballroom for the entire duration of the class and wait for my mom to come pick me up because they were so scandalized by my hot pink spandex jumpsuit. Wow. Wow. So it was like my mom sends me to Cotillion in this like kind of slutty, I mean, it was fully covered. It was like long sleeves and long legs, but it's like a hot pink spandex jumpsuit. Like who puts their like 12 year old in that outfit and then sends them to Cotillion? Like, I don't know I mean, what someone she was who's thinking. really hip to fashion, you know? <laughs> it was, yeah, I just remember that as being like one of those super humiliating moments of my childhood. And that's when I was kind of, I think it was probably one of those moments where I was like, my parents aren't really that normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, at etiquette class, so they learn teach you how to interact with the snacks properly. Like, what can you just give me an example? Like, when you pick up a pig in a blanket, like, should your pinky be extended? <laughs> I I honestly don't remember that all that well. I I remember the ballroom dancing because that was kind of hard. But my parents were always very strict about table manners, so that was something that was ingrained to me as a kid. Anyways, you know, no elbows on the table, no chewing with your mouth open. You put your knife and fork down crossed on your plate while you're still eating and then you put them next to yep. each other on the side when you're done. Mm-hmm. 5:20. Um, you ask to be excused from the table, you wait till everyone sits down before you start eating, like all these things. So I had already like learned all these table manners before I went to Cotillion. So I don't really remember mm. like all the you're etiquette the too much because I think I had been <laughs> kind of taught all of that, but I definitely remember the ballroom dancing and obviously the pink uh, spandex jumpsuit um, <laughs> scenario. <laughs> Uh, my parents were also very insistent about table manners. There's just one thing I want to say before we can start talking about fucking. Um, and so I was always taught like no elbows on the table when I first lived in the United States. And then we moved to France when I was seven. And in France, you don't keep your hands in your lap because people like don't know what you're doing down there. <laughs> <laughs> so you're supposed to put your hands on the table because they're thinking you're like masturbating or like grabbing someone else's genitals. Oh my god! <laughs> Which is like is how I like one to of eat. The yeah. things? That's funny. I remember going to Paris once when I was like 17, and they were very upset because we were like trying to figure out the money. We were like counting our money on the table, and I guess that's a big no-no mm. there. You want to like be very discreet with like the money and like slide it under the tablecloth or something like that. The waiter was very angry with us. I was like, I was just trying to figure out like dollars to francs. I don't know. <laughs> I the last thing on Cotillion that I will say is I, I remember the group that I went with from the school I was at used it's to be like coming out, isn't it? I don't know if we had that. That's like a different, like a debutante. I that's think. a debutante thing. Um, yeah, I don't think we. Yeah. 
had that. I assume cotillion and debutante balls were the same thing. I apologize. Maybe the one leads <laughs> to the other, but I just remember like it was very scandalous because one of the girls in it, their family had an RV and they like drove us from cotillion to the laser tag place in the RV. And we all <laughs> went to the back of the RV and like touched tongues. And I remember telling my mom and she was like, this is not why I'm sending you to cotillion. <laughs> <laughs> Touching tongues with other girls? Other, just, yeah, like everybody. It wasn't even nice. kissing. It was just like tongue touching. It was very strange. Nice. But in nice. the best way. How old are you when you do cotillion? I don't, 12, 11, 12? Yeah, 11? that's about oh. same age. Same age. As, oh, as it's a Goya Shabbat mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, can I, Got Nicoletta, it. can I ask you how old you are? I'm 27. Oh, okay. We definitely did not go to cotillion at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had. Well, maybe we could definitely go back and have not. a cotillion themed party. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I feel like forward. you would remember me as the girl who showed up in the spandex the hot, pink, hot pink jumpsuit. Oh yeah, we so. would have been, we would have been friends. We would have been yeah, friends. Yeah, you would have remembered. I me. do want to find out who your cotillion class was and see if they remember. You know, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, do you remember ta- the time that slut Holly showed up in her <laughs> spandex? You know, and see oh, and see what they say. God, be like we had to banish her to outside the ballroom. That's so awful. <laughs> So ridiculous. I mean, and fa- so fast forward to you being 20 and kind of joining the family business. Um, what made you decide to, you know, after your cotillion days, what made you decide to um, go into the, the same field as, as your mom? So originally, um, I wanted to be just a photographer. So, um, well, when I was very young, I thought I was going to be a vet, right? I Because I loved animals. So... Um, I would, when I was like 10 years old, I would like force myself to read the veterinary encyclopedia, even though I didn't understand it. And I would remember like being so angry at myself if I didn't, you know, read, like I think I would made myself read like 20 pages every day. And then if I didn't do it, I told myself like I'd never amount to anything. Um, so I was very like hard on myself <laughs> oh, no, from a young age. a lot age. of pressure. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hard on myself. So, and then I, uh, and then I went to, I was going to school I was going to Windward and I had like an open, you know, class that you could take an elective. And I was like, oh, I'll take photography, you know, and and I was never really into, I, I loved images. I was like obsessed with images, but I feel like, you know, like all young girls are like ripping Picture pages books. out of magazines and fashion magazines and stuff like that. And so I, I took this photography class and I'll just, I'll never forget the moment in the dark room, the first time I developed a print. And I slid that paper into the developing tray and I watched the image emerge on the paper. And it was just like this moment where I was like, I was like, I knew that that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Like I was, ab- that, there's a lot of things in life that I'm not sure about. Photography has always been the one thing I've been 100% sure about my whole life. Everything else, I have no idea. But that, I knew it. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. This is like my destiny. I know that's it sounds awesome. kind of corny, but that's how I felt. So I was 12 years old. And um, I started, you know, I just did photography. That was everything to me. I shot all the time. I shot my friends. I shot my sister. I shot my family. And um, so after I graduated high school, I went to Brooks Institute of Photography. And I was there for about a year and a half. And I didn't really love it. It's a very conservative school. Um, They put out a lot of like wedding and commercial photographers. You know, I wanted to do fashion. You know, I wanted to do edgy stuff. And I remember um, one of the the kind of moments that made me realize it wasn't the right school for me. I had a friend of mine who, now when you graduated Brooks, right, you did what's called like a graduation show. And so you hung, you did your best prints that you, whatever, shot that year. And you hung them on the walls and you graduated and your family came and they looked at your work and everybody looked at your work and it was this whole thing. And so one of my friends shot um, these nudes for his like senior thesis and they were beautiful and they were super classy um, and you couldn't really see anything. And, um, I remember Mr. Brooks, uh, who was a very conservative man, um, before the graduation show, went around and put pieces of tape over the nipples of his <gasps> photographs and like basically like defaced his images. And he was devastated. And I remember wow. thinking to myself, I'm like, this is not the place for me. So at the same yeah. time, my parents had just launched Suze.net, my mom's website. And this is the early days of the internet, right? And they were just making like, so much money. Like they didn't know what they were doing, but my mom is such a huge library of images. And this is back before you could really stream video. You know, you had to like, everyone was on dial up. People were on AOL. 
So, so she, her website was doing incredibly well. And, you know, they were just like, they didn't know, like they couldn't, they were growing so quickly, they didn't know what to do. And so they asked me if I wanted to come, move back to LA. I was in Santa Barbara at the time. And just like kind of help out in the office a little bit. Um, and then, you know, and that was kind of it. And I was like, okay, I'll come back and, and I'll, I'll finish up my education. I ended up going to UCLA and graduating with a degree in world literature um, because my other like love was, was books and reading and writing. So, um, so I went back there and I just started working for them in the office and I thought it would just be like, you know, I'd do that for like six months while I kind of figured out what I was doing. And I just sort of fell in love with the business. And I grew up in a very different kind of scenario. Like I was introduced into the porn world in a very different way than most people. I was raised in what I call like the Sue's bubble where everything was super high glam, super beautiful. We had the best makeup artists, the best stylists. We had great set design. And my parents had all this freedom now to shoot whatever they wanted because of the internet. So we just like would build these elaborate sets with these amazing like wardrobe and costume. And it was so much fun. It was just like doing kind of fashion shoots, but you know, people get naked and have sex. But it was like, we would sit around and be like, what do we want to shoot this week? Oh, let's shoot like a 20s gangster theme and we could do it. And, you know, she worked with the same people all the time and it felt like a family and the way that my mom was with the girls and the way that they respected her. Um, it just felt like very safe and it was really, really fun. And it was so mm. creative. And the freedom that we had to kind of shoot whatever we wanted was incredible. And And it just, I don't know. And so I just kind of fell in love with it and I became friends with, some of the models and, um, you know, the crew, we were all, it was actually a time when my, like, my mom's, like, lighting assistant, our uh, videographer, and me, like, all lived together in the same house. So we would, like, hang out and then work. It was just, like, it was so different back then, you know? Yeah, and, I mean, um, it sounds beautiful. I wish there was more content like that out there today. Like, how do you feel like the industry's changed since then? Oh, God. So much. It's, I mean, we used to spend all day shooting one photo set. You know, we didn't even have to shoot video. So the time that you could take to perfect every shot and the time that you could spend on the makeup and the, and the, the money you could spend on the set design and the wardrobe. And we used to shoot with like 15 lights. I mean, it was nuts. Um, and now I so have is it to just shoot. that people don't have the resources now or they don't want to spend it or they don't no, care it's to? people aren't paying as much for it anymore. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. No, people aren't paying for porn anymore. People expect this so shit to no, be free. Yeah, there's no money in it anymore. It's not like it used to be. Um, so, yeah, you know. Sorry for getting so angry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, believe me, girl. I, you're pre preaching to the choir. <laughs> you know, we all have a really hard time with constantly shrinking budgets and now I have to shoot like, four photo sets plus video in a day. And then, um, you know, like for a lot less money. And it's just, uh, it's just really hard. It's really hard to produce quality content um, for the budgets I have to work with. And I have to cut so many corners and I have to, I honestly feel like I have to compromise my work a lot and it's, it sucks. Mm. That does, and I feel like as a, as a consumer of it, I have definitely been judgmental before I knew more of the inner workings of, I think, you know, the in the industry. But to be like, well, why is the, you know, the context so bad? Why is this part so bad? And like knowing mm -hmm. that they're not working with a lot of resources all the time. No, Can I, I mean, ask you a question, Nicoletta, about that. Yeah. Um, so like before you like knew about the industry, um, like I'm assuming like before we did the podcast and stuff like that, um, when you were like thinking about how like the quality of something was shitty, were you paying for it? Nom, yes, actually. You're not, amazing. Definitely not always, but I mean, I think my first foray into watching adult entertainment was like I would travel for, for horse riding competitions and I would watch um, the pay-per-view at the hotels. <laughs> I totally <laughs> forgot about this. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, I, at the time I was paying for it, I think in high school and later on I did not pay because um, I would definitely, you know, that was like, oh, finding the clip sites. Um, was just happening. And so that was obviously different and a different kind of porn than maybe paying for the, you know, feature series or the longer uh, documentary style. <laughs> and I do wonder, though, if some of us get used to not paying for porn because we first access it 
like, let's be honest, like well before we're 18, when it's the secret thing that we're doing um, that our parents can't know about. And so we have no way to pay for it. And so maybe that's what I'm thinking. Maybe that's part of it. Like we have a whole generation of people who grew up being able to access it free of charge because had you had to pay for it, they wouldn't have witnessed it. And now they're just used to it, which is fucking wrong. But I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. Uh, the new newer generations are used to not paying for stuff. And I mean, let's be honest, like human nature, if you don't have to pay for it, generally you're not going to do it, you know? Mm. So how do you make money from it? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, sometimes my friend, I actually went out with a friend of mine last night who's a director and, and both of us were like, how to like, how do, I mean, you know, a lot of what I do now is shooting for other clients. And both of us were like, how do like people, like, how are we still getting work? Interrupting this titillating talk to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Care Of, which is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. So you can spring into a healthy routine, aka actually be able to bang every day. How is it personalized? You take this fun, like five minute online quiz and based on your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, Care Of comes up with a specific personalized vitamin routine. Getting your vitamins should be easy and convenient. That's why Care Of delivers a month's supply in individual packs that have little inspirational messages on them. For example, one of mine says like, have a great day, Simone. And so I empty the pack and take all my vitamins right then. And the thing about Care Of is they actually care. A portion of every sale goes to the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers with much-needed prenatal vitamins. So if you want to try Care Of, you can get your first month 50% off by going to TakeCareOf.com and use our code SNS50. Enjoy. Sorry for the interruption, but pause this episode right meow and go use our discount code to get some new lube from hashtag lube life. It's already affordable and organic, but if you use the discount code 20 scholars, you can have it for even cheaper. Hashtag lube life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their certified organic facility and are available in water-based silicone flavored and more. I'm going to taste the watermelon flavor right now, actually. Ooh. It brings me right back to the days of lip smackers and bubblicious gum, except now it's even sexier. If you don't like flavor, they also have regular water-based, silicone, hybrids, and more. Remember to make sure you're using the right lube for your body, your toys, and your barriers. To buy hashtag LubeLife through Amazon, go to lubelife.com and use promo code 20scholars, 20SCH. O-L-A-R-S. Stay wet and remember, lube is your best friend. Now, back to the episode. Okay, well, so being that your your mom was in, in the industry and that the industry has changed over time, how do you feel like you've wanted to like differentiate yourself or stand out? That is a good question. Um, so, you know, before it was really about like just sticking to shooting like the beautiful glamour content, which is what I've known for. Um, especially like when the internet kind of really started taking off and suddenly all these boundaries were lifted because before the internet, um, you know, you had to be careful the kind of content that you, you shot, that you distributed like in a tangible product. Um, so, you know, we shot a lot for the magazines and you couldn't show penetration in the magazines and, um, Mm -hmm. different States allowed different things. So when the internet came along, it was kind of like the Wild West, right? And you could pretty much get away with shooting like almost anything um, because like the government couldn't really come after you because you could be, you know, your server could be in Russia or whatever, but anybody could access it. So it really kind of changed the nature of porn and and porn went into kind of this whole like what I call the porn Olympics, you know, it's like how many baseball bats can you shove up your ass and all these really extreme acts and that's what people <laughs> were really into and that's not, you know, what we are about. So, you know, we just really tried to stick with what we do, the glamour stuff, the pretty stuff. Um, and then things started to kind of shift around back to people, I think, wanting like that high quality glamour content. Um, and you see a lot of that now um, with certain companies. And so, um, and then, but, you know, it just became like really competitive and, and hard to produce that kind of content 
um, you know, with the money that, or the lack of money that, that we were making, which is actually kind of why I decided to move forward and, and start a podcast. Cause I thought, I'm like, okay, what do I have that like other people don't have? Right. You know, I don't have like that kind of stranglehold on the glamour market anymore. There's a lot of other people like producing like high end glamour now. Um, a lot of really talented directors coming into the industry who are hiring like mainstream DPs and, you know, have all this money to throw at these productions. And I was like, what I do have is I'm a woman in the industry, which is kind of unusual. Um, I grew up in the industry, which is unusual. So I have like all this experience and I have all this knowledge of, you know, how things were and how things are now. Like I kind of have this arc of, um, of experience where I've seen like where, where the industry was, um, to where it is now. And, Mm -hmm. um, I generally, I hope have the respect and the trust of my fellow performers, my fellow performers, sorry, uh, performers that I work with and, um, and stuff like that. And, you know, I like to talk (laughs) and I thought maybe Mm -hmm. I'll try a podcast and, you know, interview, people and and see if that's something that people find interesting and it was just kind of one of those things that I sort of threw at the wall I wasn't really sure if it was going to do well and then I ended up like kind of really taking off and it's been an amazing experience um I've had you know incredible feedback from people who've told me that I've changed their mind about how they see sex workers and porn stars how they see the adult industry that I've humanized the industry that you know mm-hmm. I've taken these girls that so many people only see, you know, in these like outrageous sex scenes, they only see one side of them. And I've shown them the world that these are like real people with hopes and fears and dreams and, you know, that they're funny and they're smart and they're all of these things. And um, yes. I've found that a lot of the stars trust me to open up to me in a way that they have never opened up publicly to other people before. So I've had like some really emotional and moving and revealing episodes where, you know, people talked about things and opened up about things that I did not expect. And, um, Mm. it's been like a kind of a really incredible experience. So that's, that's been, um, something that I've been really focusing a lot more time and effort on because I really see that, you know, possibly going places. I mean, speaking of humanizing people in the industry, which is something we we also love to do, and we love your work on that. Um, I wonder. I saw this interview that you did maybe some years ago, and it was just talking about um, the assumptions that people make about women, especially who do sexual scenes or performances that are quote unquote degrading. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how we help folks and consumers understand that just because you like to be degraded in the bedroom or on camera, it doesn't mean that you have a problem or have low self-respect or no self-esteem or that you're being forced. Right. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, guys might know more than, than I do that. I mean, sex, human sexuality is like a really multifaceted thing and it's, it's a fascinating thing, you know, and so many different people are into different things for different reasons. And, you Mm -hmm. know, sex is, is often, and sexual fantasies are often an escape from the real world. And a lot of, of people that I know um, who are into, like, say, being submissive in the bedroom or being degraded or something like that are people who in their real lives are usually bosses, are usually in charge, are usually the ones giving the orders. So when they have sex, they kind of like to flip the script and they like to be they like to not have to make the decisions. They like to kind of be yes. the passive one. Um, and I've seen that a lot. You know, a lot of performers that I know that shoot really hardcore scenes where they're submissive and, you know, girls like Angela White and Adriana Chekchik and and that kind of thing, they're like strong women in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, people's tastes sexually doesn't mean, you know, doesn't reveal who they are really as a person. You know, they can be like two separate things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing to emphasize. Yeah. And you have the privilege of being behind the scenes. I wonder what are some other things that you've like learned or noticed or debunked um, as you've been able to be on set and and meet people. Yeah, I mean, you just you re- when you're on set and you work in porn and you see the behind the scenes, you really like 
see how this is very much a job and, and often really much a performance. Um, that really occurred to me um, a few months ago when I was shooting uh, Lisa Ann. I was shooting her interracial gangbang. And um, while I was shooting the footage, you know, she's, she's fucking like six big dudes and, you know, and they're saying dirty stuff to her like, yeah, take that dick and you like that and slapping her ass. And it feels like kind of aggressive. And then when we cut for a break, like the, it completely changes and the guys are like talking about fantasy football and they're like, hey, do you need a baby wipe? Do you need some water? Was that okay? Was I too hard on you? Like, you know, there's like so much communication going on and it's like a completely different scenario. And I was thinking to myself and I was like, I wish sometimes that the fans could see this so they could see like, yes. you know, it, it seems so aggressive and so hardcore and oh my God, this poor woman. But like, I mean, especially if you know Lisa Ann, like she is the one who is in charge and she's the one who's giving all the guys orders. I remember actually it was really funny because one of the guys was um, was like, I think he was struggling a little bit. And so he like kind of kept like going to the corner and you can see her like she's, and at least I can tell, she's looking for him. And she's like, where is that guy? She's like, I paid for six dicks. I need six dicks over here. Why are you off camera? Get your dick over here. Get your dick in my mouth or get your dick in my ass because I'm paying for that dick and I am not paying for five dicks. And it was just like the funniest thing. And I was like, she's so right, you know? Yeah. And it was just like this moment where, you know, people think like, you know, it's one thing like this girl being like taken advantage of and degraded by all these men, but like it is 100% her show and she is running it. So why don't we show fans this? Like we had, we had Jessica Drake on like a very long time ago when we first started. And she talked about in her guide to wicked sex, she like wanted to show all the things that you don't see in porn or no, even in some of her porn, she like was like, we never grab for lube in porn. We like don't. And like, Mm -hmm. why do you think that? And like, how, how can we shift that narrative? Or do you think it's not worth it? And like to maintain the fantasy? Um, I think, you know, people like to maintain the fantasy. It depends on what you're shooting. I mean, nowadays, especially with the clip sites and the private Snapchat and the live shows and stuff like that, that's more um, kind of amateur and more real. So in those situations, you might see the girl grab and go for the lube and and that kind of thing. But when you're shooting these kind of like high-end fantasy productions, you generally don't want to see, you know... You don't want to see the girl go for the lube because you want to imagine that she's she's fully wet the whole time, you know? So, I mean, we are we are very much manufacturing a fantasy, but there is stuff that's not like that. And um, there's with the big success of, you know, amateur porn and, like I said, the private Snapchats and the live shows and all that kind of stuff, there's obviously, like, an audience for that. But it just it just depends on what you're shooting, you know? There's so many different kinds of porn. Definitely. In in setting up some of those sets and shoots, what do you think? I mean, I know not all female directors are the same, but I wonder, like, what do you think in your perspective, like female directors or producers bring to the set and to that content? Um, I think that, you know, we really think about the, the, the girl. I think being a woman, you know, we, we emphasize with how, you know, a woman would feel being in front of the camera. We understand, um, you know, the self-conscious body issues that we might have. We understand when one might feel overwhelmed. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of girls say that, you know, they, in, in situations where girls have felt that their boundaries were pushed, you know, and there's been a couple of like, you know, pretty well-documented, discussed scenarios um, this mm-hmm. past year about that. Um, where they didn't feel that they could speak up because there wasn't any women on set and they were surrounded by men. Mm. And oh. I think that having a woman there helps you feel like more comfortable and feeling like there's someone who understands maybe what you're going through or understands what it's like to like have a sore vagina or something like that. You know what I mean? Or understands what it's like, like if you're having some problem down there, you know, I've had girls, you know, who are like, I don't know, I might, you know, have a yeast infection or something like that. And they'd feel more comfortable coming to me about that than telling like a male director about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some just, you know, there's like a little bit of sisterhood there. Um, Another thing is too, I know this is kind of random, but it sort of matters is that I was talking to another performer who said that like the only time she's ever been on set where there was like good healthy food was when women were directing. So when like normally they're on set and it's a guy, it's like pizza and like chips and stuff like that. 
And they're like, this is so bad for me. You know, I'm supposed to be like naked on camera and look cute. And you're like feeding me pizza. And she's like, but when I go to like a set where a woman's directing, she's got like vegetables and like salads and, you know, things that like are, are healthy and, um, you know, better for somebody who has to get in front of the camera to eat. So just like, I don't know, maybe just little details like that. Mm. Um, I mean, I definitely don't want to like say that, you know, all male directors don't care about girls and they don't like take those little things into consideration. But, you know, I know that I do. And from what I've heard Mm. from some girls have told me that they, they see that more frequently on sets where, where women are producing or directing. So the set experience is a little different. Would you say that there's anything qualitatively different about uh, what you produce? Like what the um, I think like maybe, yeah, maybe I'm more into, you know, like the facial expressions, um, into the storyline, into um, maybe the reason why they're having sex. I'm not so like focused on, you know, the boobs and the butt and the vagina. Like I see, you know, I like look at everything else before I look at that. Um, so maybe like we just see more of like the bigger picture, you know, um, Mm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say because again, I think people like so much want to differentiate between like female directed porn and male directed porn. Um, but I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's always that big of a difference. Yeah. Um, this is like a side note, but similarly, so this is about like the state of porn, in general. Um, Mm -hmm. And in looking at your website, I'm just like curious about how you feel about this or if you even pay attention or if you think something else. So like a lot of porn has like a very specific type of woman in it. um, And a lot of porn has like just like white women in it. And Mm -hmm. I was just like looking through and I had some trouble finding non-white women on your website. And I was just curious, like, what do you think about that fact in the industry? Like how white women might be treated differently or portrayed more um, or like, and why you think that might be? Well, I mean, I think that with the stuff that there's, well, first of all, there's just, there's more white women than there are um, people of color in the industry, at least like in the mainstream kind of stuff that I shoot. Um And uh, I agree. I mean, I think there's definitely should be more women of color. It's funny, actually, because I have um, I'm putting up a girl of color in like uh, about a week and a half. So if we had this conversation in like two weeks, you would see like Kira Noir on my website and she's a black girl. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just um, I I don't know. It's just there's just more there's more white women than than women of yeah. of color and you know from when you go to an agency website and you look at all the girls to shoot it's like you know 80% white girls wait how does that work how do you pick a girl so there's several different agencies um that cater to the adult industry and that's generally where you find the models some of them are self-representing but a lot of times mm-hmm. you have to get an agent because you don't get enough work if you self-rep Got it. And so you typically, is this like the Spiegler girls? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one agency, Spiegler girls, adult, um, ATMLA, um, uh, OC modeling. There's a bunch of them. Um, so you shoot like basically everything kind of related to uh, naked, sexy stuff, right? And mm-hmm. you do porn and like sexy porn pictures, but you also do erotic photography and like fine art books. So my first question is, what is the difference between erotic photography and porn stills? And two, what's your journey in like down this other path? So um, when I'm focusing on like my erotic, like fine art stuff, I'm not looking to create images to like sexually titillate people. I'm not really looking to create images basically that people are going to masturbate to. Okay. That's like Mm -hmm. the the most, um, the most simple way I can say it. So it's really about, um, you know, creating some kind of artistic image that you might like hang on your wall. So it's more about like the, the body shape, um, the lighting, the shadows, um, the composition, the location, um, that kind of thing. It's not, you know, so much about like how many different positions can I get with a girl spreading her vagina wide? 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, how many positions can I get of a girl like spreading her butt cheeks? Like, it's not about that. So it's a totally <laughs> different kind of, it's a totally different kind of shoot. And Would you um, say that, oh, sorry, before you move on to the next thing, um, mm-hmm. would you, I, I'm, this is something that I'm just thinking about. So when you make your porn, we were talking about the difference between like men and women, like Laura Mulvey talks about the male gaze. And I'm just curious, like when you're making your porn, are you thinking about what men are going to want to see? Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You're like laughing about that. It depends on the client. Here, let me actually, let me clarify. It depends on the client that I'm shooting for. Like I just started shooting um, for Wicked Pictures. Um, I shot my first movie actually comes out this week and I'm working on my next one. And that is more, I'm shooting for their passions line, which is uh, like geared more towards couples and, and, and female consumers. So what's important awesome. for that is the storyline um, I really try to make sure that the storyline is something about like female empowerment, you know, where the woman comes out, um, you know, confident and um, it's about like her journey. And, uh, you know, the sex is usually fairly, you know, romantic or some might say vanilla. It's not really about getting like a ton of penetration shots. It's more about the face. Um, you know, I don't have to do cum shots on the face all the time. <laughs> now, when I'm shooting for other clients um, and it's geared towards men, then, you know, I'm thinking about making sure that I get good penetration shots where you definitely see the penis going in the vagina or getting these low shots with a wide angle so her ass looks big. Um, and, you know, often a lot of these clients now like really micromanage the shoots. So they send me like very specific shots that they want, which they call ad shots. Mm. So, you know, I'm shooting pretty much exactly what somebody else is telling me to shoot. And they got that from their analytics and their metrics. And, you know, their audience is 90% men. So, you know, it's the, it's what men prefer generally that's driving, driving that content. So it just depends on the client that I'm shooting for, but I'm mostly shooting for brands that are looking to to men. Um, Do you feel like you've ever wanted to be a performer or be in porn after watching it behind the scenes? No, only because I'm not an exhibitionist. Um, I obviously like don't have anything personal against it. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, I'm not worried about backlash from my family or anything like that. I just, I prefer to be behind the camera. I don't really like, I've done a couple like, um, you know, kind of very, very soft core modeling shoots. I did like two shoots, like in my whole 20 year career. And I've had, um, and they were great, you know, and it was, it was fine. And I've had a lot of people ask me to like shoot more. And I just like, don't want to, I'm just not, maybe it's thing about control. You know what I mean? Like I like to be the person Mm -hmm. in control, but I generally don't want to be, I just don't want to be in front of the camera. It's just not, it's not my thing. Um, and it's just, it's not what I enjoy. Do you think people have assumptions about what kind of sex you're having in your private life? A lot of people think I'm a lesbian because I shoot women. Mm. Like I had one guy say to me, like, yeah, I had one guy say to me, like, why would you shoot naked women if you didn't want to fuck them? And I was like, (laughs) this is obviously somebody who assumes that everybody who shoots porn, you know, has sex with models. And I was like, "Uh, no, I'm actually like totally heterosexual. I'm not into girls at all. Um, But I think women are beautiful. And I enjoy what I do. And I, I like being, you know, I like being a director that women feel safe with. You know, I think it's important to have female directors in the industry, you know. Um, I think mm-hmm. that we need more of them. And, and I, like being, I like being one of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I cut you off before you were talking about your erotic photography. And I just want to get to that before we wrap up. Um, sure. Sorry, I got distracted by the male gaze. Per use, just being all <laughs> feminist over here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to produce uh, an erotic photography book on my own. I have four books out already um, through Goliath Publishing, but those were not um, books that I was able. I didn't choose any of the photos. Um, they basically picked everything and, and put the book together. I just gave them a password to my website, which is fine. Um, and they're great, but you know, it's a very like commercial kind of glamour photography book. 
Um, so I really wanted to create something that was, was very different than what I'm generally known for. And I kind of wanted to challenge myself and like force myself to try to get out, you know, shoot out of the box and, um, shoot stuff that's more, you know, maybe stripped down. So I'm doing a lot of stuff where, you know, the girl doesn't have big hair and makeup and like, you know, all this wardrobe and, you know, amazing location settings and that kind of stuff. It's more about, you know, the female form. It's more about the lighting, the shadows, the light, and just like really kind of stripped down beautiful images of women without all that like fanfare that kind of normally surrounds my content. So it's, it's been like a, a big challenge for me. I've shot a lot of stuff with natural light and I'm somebody who uses mm. strobes a lot. And so um, it's definitely been a situation where like, I have to kind of tell myself like, okay, don't add a light there like you normally would. Let's try shooting this a different way. And it's been, uh, it's been really great. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I feel like it's, um, it's challenged me a lot. And, and that's something that I need, you know, cause I shoot a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And um, it's just something that I feel like is pushing me creatively. That's so interesting. I'm so glad that you, it's, yeah, this is a really interesting, it's been a really great conversation. Just thinking about like the pressures on women in the industry, like either people assume that if you're like a female director, you have, you're like making it for women. Yeah. It's like an interesting assumption that I had coming into this conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, that's it. the thing. It's like, it's, I wish I had, I mean, I'll be honest. I wish I had more control over my career. I really do. I wish that I didn't, as much as I, I, I do like love the clients that I work for and I appreciate them so much. Um, I would love to be able to just shoot for myself and produce my own content and write my own scripts and shoot my own movies and do everything the way that I wanted to do it. But unfortunately that's just not the reality. You know, it's just not something that is financially feasible for me. I have to work for other people um, to be able to really make any money to continue to survive in the industry. So that's why this, this art book project is kind of important to me because it's something that I can finally do. That's really like, all for me and something that I really want to do and is, is very much like a passion project. So that's why I started a Patreon for it. Um, Patreon.com slash Holly Randall art where people can go yes. and, you know, obviously pledge and, and just help me make this dream a reality and they get access to all the exclusive like pictures and video and like behind the scenes and, and that kind of stuff. So it's been, um, it's, it's still in its early stages. I only just, launched um that patreon like i think in november or something like that but uh you know i i really appreciate my fans have been like very supportive and i hope that it's something that you know i can actually make come to fruition it would mean a lot to me yeah we're so grateful for all of the diverse work that you do and super honored to have you be with us in the Pleasure Podcast Collective. And um, for listeners out there, definitely go to Holly Randall's Patreon and support um, the work, amazing work that she does and subscribe to her podcast, um, Holly Randall Unfiltered. Is there any other way that you'd like people to follow your work and check you out? Yeah, you can always follow me on social media. I'm at Holly Randall on Instagram and on Twitter. And, um, you know, you can find all the links to all the thousands of things that I promote um, there. So, <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And of course, if you want to see what we're up to, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and per usual, you can email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. 